Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, Mississippi author, journalist, and professor Ellen Meacham discusses Robert F. Kennedy's 1967 visit to the Mississippi Delta and the lasting effect it had on his career. This lecture was co-hosted by the First Regional Library, and the presentation was made possible by a grant through the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the following audio has been pulled from the video Delta Epiphany, originally recorded on July 24, 2020. The audio has been edited to fit the podcast format. Stay tuned! Hello and welcome to everyone who's joining us. This is another one of MLC's summer lunch lecture series talks today. Today we have Delta Epiphany, Robert F. Kennedy in Mississippi with Ellen Meacham. These talks are all sponsored by the Mississippi Humanities Council and today's presentation is co-hosted by First Regional Library. We are also giving away a copy of Ellen's, we meaning Ellen, is giving away a copy of her book today. And so we have someone here at MLC who is keeping track of who's here and, get, and assigning you all numbers at the end. Ellen, you can pick one sure. and we'll get, we'll get that book to you. This is being recorded. It will be on YouTube either later today or in a few days. And it's being streamed live on Facebook. So as usual, if you will mute yourself throughout the presentation, if you have a question, please use the chat. Sometimes if you wait till the end, you might forget. So go ahead and type out your question. And then at the end, we'll loop back and make sure all of your questions are, are answered. If you are um, watching this on Facebook, you can comment in the comments. And we have this great technology where someone texts me what your questions are, and then I can ask them. There's probably an easier way. We don't, haven't figured that out yet. But uh, let me introduce our speaker and we'll get started. Ellen Meacham is a Tennessee native, longtime resident of Mississippi, and a career journalist and journalism instructor at her alma mater, the University of Mississippi. She has been a working journalist for more than two decades. Her experience as a newspaper reporter and her master's degree in Southern Studies, a multidisciplinary program at the University of Mississippi, supports her understanding of the politics, economics, culture, and the people of the South and the Mississippi Delta. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, American Heritage Magazine Online, The Clarion Ledger, Commercial Appeal, and The Advocate. She has also been featured on Hardball with Chris Matthews, on MSNBC, the BBC, Ireland's News Talk Radio, Newsmax Television, Marketplace with Kai Rizdahl, and on numerous other public radio shows. She lives in the tiny town of Taylor, near Oxford, with her family, where she is a member of the town's board of aldermen. And you can read more about her and her work at ellenmeacham.com. Ellen, I will hand it over to you, and I'm looking forward to this. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, and I'm so thrilled to be talking with the Library Commission. You know, there's a, a quote, and I've forgotten who I should be able to attribute it, but it just came to me about the idea that uh, I always considered my idea of heaven is a kind of library, and I think that's still true, and um, I'm a huge fan and big supporter of libraries now more than ever. I think they're so crucial, um, and I just, from the time I was a tiny child, the joy of entering the library, um, there's, is, you know, maybe entering a bookstore and a few other things, there's, it's hard, there's not much to compare, so I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy y'all have joined me in these strange and unusual times. Um, 
And uh, as someone who writes journalism, but is also doing some history as well, I encourage you to keep a diary or write down, sit right down right now and write down some of your memories about what this time was like, how it compares to the time before, what's changed for you, what's on your mind. You know, it's not always fun to live through major events of history. It can be quite harrowing, but the future historians will thank you, or even just your children or your grandchildren or other descendants. We learned so much about how to be resilient from the stories of our family. And so I would just say, make a, do a little commercial for you right now to encourage you to do that. So uh, a lot of times when I'm talking about this book, people often ask me, how did you get the idea or where did you decide to start with this? And um, I think it's in my contract somewhere that every time I talk, I have to quote William Faulkner since I'm living in and working in Oxford. And so I thought I would start with this quote because it became meaningful to me as I was working on this book. He said, a story usually begins with a single idea or memory or mental picture. And that's kind of how it was for me. My colleague, Curtis Wilkie, who was a, is a journalist in Mississippi and covered Kennedy's visit and Dr. King's work in the Delta and lots of civil rights work in the early 60s, he was with Robert Kennedy when he went through there. So he wrote about it and he had a piece in his memoir, which I highly recommend. And it was this image that I'm gonna start with and I couldn't shake it. I kept, it, it just left me with a lot of questions. And as I started to pursue the answers to those questions, I started to become convinced that this, this incident is a, an illustrative incident that can teach us a lot about what things were like then, both for America and, and Kennedy as a leader for America and for Mississippi. And it can also give us some guidance about how we approach issues today and how we understand how we got to where we are. One of the bigger questions I think I, I was trying to answer, and I would keep my students in mind as an audience for this, is why is Mississippi the way it is? How did it get to where it is now? And th this is part of my ongoing efforts to answer that question. So this mental picture or memory is Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who is a son of power, of America's power and promise and privilege, knelt in a crumbling shack in 1967, trying to coax a response from a listless child. After several minutes with little response, the Senator, profoundly moved, walked out the back door to speak with reporters. America, he told them, must do better. What he was seeing, as he later privately told an aide and another reporter, was worse than anything he had ever seen in this country. As he toured the Mississippi Delta, which is an impoverished cotton-producing region in the northwest part of the state, that warm April day in 1967, Kennedy talked with mothers about how they fed their children. He looked in empty refrigerators and asked school children about what they had for breakfast. The depths of the deprivation he found in Mississippi stunned both Kennedy and because of the press coverage that inevitably followed him, it stunned the nation. As he traveled through the state during the 48 hours or so that Kennedy was here, he did more than just encounter hungry children. He sparred with members of the state's political elite, 
officials who resented money spent on early childhood education, especially for poor black children. He toured job training programs and Head Start classrooms. He gave two impromptu speeches to wildly enthusiastic college students, one on a mostly white campus at Millsaps and the other at an African-American college at Tougaloo. He dined with civil rights leaders, journalists, liberal business leaders, and educators at a lovely suburban Jackson home. In addition to all of that, he sipped scotch by the hotel pool and talked New York politics and baseball with local reporters. He even took a nap in the guest bedroom of a Jackson pediatrician. You know, once I looked at his schedule and started tracking what he'd done, he had to be exhausted. It was an exhausting trip. One of the things that fascinated me was that Kennedy arrived in Mississippi at a pivotal point in American history. After the speeches and the protests and the legal showdowns and the violence of the 1950s and early 1960s, Congress had finally responded with sweeping changes. There were new civil rights laws, enhanced protections for voting rights, and a new war on poverty. Furthermore, the war in Vietnam was going badly and Americans were just beginning to realize it, even if they were still deeply divided about what to do about it. So just a month before he arrived, Kennedy had stirred controversy by breaking with President Lyndon Johnson and offering a three-point plan to end the fighting in Vietnam. You know, that was a big deal in the press then because Johnson had been his brother's vice president. John F. Kennedy, it, it had been his decision-making that had drawn us into Vietnam. So there was a lot of news about that and, and he, a lot of controversy. Then a week before Kennedy toured the Delta, Martin Luther King Jr. earned his own part of the controversy when he publicly criticized the war for killing the nation's young people and siphoning money away from programs that helped the poor. Dr. King said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Kennedy's visit to Mississippi in 1967 provides a useful lens to examine the impact of these waves of change. His visit was a catalyst that drew out the extremes of Mississippi's culture at the time. In Jackson, members of the Ku Klux Klan met him at the airport, carrying signs castigating him for his position on Vietnam and distributing flyers predicting his death. They were only echoing the hatred of Kennedy that many white Mississippians harbored for him because of his role as Attorney General in the integration of the University of Mississippi, as well as other conflicts over civil rights in the state. On the other hand, frontline civil rights workers and advocates in Mississippi, like young Marion Wright, who was an NAACP attorney, legal defense attorney, they were unimpressed with his record. Many of them had struggled through life-threatening violence with little or no help from the Kennedy administration's Department of Justice. They viewed Kennedy as a ruthless political dealmaker who put too much priority on accommodating powerful Southern politicians in Congress. However, Kennedy and his brother were heroes to many of the ordinary black residents in the state. In fact, just about 48 hours after Kennedy landed to the shouts of the KKK, just 48 hours later, African-Americans in Clarksdale cheered him. And as one journalist who was traveling with him recalled, 
reached up to him to touch him like they were trying to touch the robes of Jesus Christ at his last stop in Mississippi. Hints of other changes were in the air in Mississippi as well. The day before Kennedy arrived, the daughter of Ronald Reagan, California's charismatic new conservative governor, was the guest of honor at a luncheon in Greenville designed to build support for Phyllis Shafley, the conservative candidate for the president of the National Federation of Republican Women. The Greenville businessman Clark Reed, who hosted Maureen Reagan's sills that day, had little interest in Kennedy's visit. Instead, Reed had long been intent on building a strong business-minded Republican Party in the state to offset the power of the Democratic Party that had ruled the Solid South for so long. And the very day that Kennedy left Jackson for the Mississippi Delta, Stokely Carmichael spoke in the same chapel at Tougaloo College where Kennedy had talked with students the evening before. Carmichael was a leading voice for a new breed of civil rights activists focused on black power. His passionate, uncompromising rhetoric was thrilling African-American students and rattling the establishment across the South. In that spring of 1967, he arrived in Jackson just days after a riot that broke out in Nashville following his speech at Vanderbilt University. And Carmichael left Jackson the next day with a state lawmaker calling for charges of treason against him. But perhaps the most powerful forces that were roiling the Mississippi Delta as Kennedy arrived were economic. In the first seven years of the 1960s, changes in federal agriculture policies, new farming practices like mechanization and herbicide chemicals that were on the market had in a few short year, years left tens of thousands of farm workers out of a job and many out of a home because often their homes were tied to their work on the land. Sharecroppers and plantation workers in the Delta had always been poor, but in 1967, they were especially desperate. This was in part because some well-meaning world poverty programs that worked nationwide had worsened their plight instead of improving it. While at the public hearing in Jackson on April 10th, Kennedy and the other senators who were with him heard impassioned pleas for help from advocates like Marion Wright, who later became Marion Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund, and a litany of statistical woes like infant mortality, persistent childhood anemia, and many other troubling and painful diseases and deprivation. But nothing prepared him for the emotional impact of meeting and holding those babies. On his return to Washington, Kennedy immediately began seeking ways to help the children he met in Mississippi. However, institutional obstacles and powerful men who were indifferent to the suffering of poor black children made getting aid to them much harder than he expected. It's hard to believe in this day and age when people are already talking about, you know, we're not through a 2020s election, people are already talking about running for president in 2024, who might. Kennedy, even though he was a year out from the first primaries in 1968 presidential election, he had not yet decided to run for president. He spent only a few hours in the Mississippi Delta, but he could not shake the memories of the children he had seen in Mississippi. He talked about it even when it wasn't politic or popular for the rest of his life. 
I came across national column, newspaper columnists who would, were writing when he was campaigning in 68, you know, why does he keep talking about the hungry children in Mississippi? Why does he keep talking about this? And his speeches, this is not helping him get votes in Indiana or California. He was even mentioned what he had seen, the hunger, the rural hunger that he had seen and the starvation five minutes before he was shot and killed and assassinated. Today, just as in 1967, the juxtaposition of Kennedy with the destitution in Mississippi makes for a compelling story. It is not, however, the whole story. Kennedy's visit to the Delta is often recounted in history books and his biographies as a pivotal moment in his growth as a leader. However, far too long, the poor people, the hungry women and the children that he encountered have been faceless and also often nameless little more than stock characters in a poverty background for Kennedy, the main hero in a morality play. And when I set out to write this book, I did not want to write a story just about this, you know, some knight coming down to Mississippi to save everybody. I really felt like it was essential to tell the stories of the people he encountered. Kennedy never represented himself as such. And today we're used to celebrities who travel to blighted places in order to use their fame to draw attention to the suffering of people that they encounter. And so people, when they look back at what he was doing, they often think that's what he was doing, but they forget that he, his trip was no poverty tour as we know it in our current environment. Instead, it was more akin to a fact-finding mission. He and the other senators with him wanted to know just how well war on poverty programs were working. In fact, Daniel Shore, the CBS newsman who covered Kennedy's trip, in his report that evening, he likened Kennedy to an inspector general. That's a far cry from a celebrity using his fame for attention to an issue. Another point about that is that we don't have any photographs of that iconic moment that Chris Wilkie and a few other journalists and Marion Wright and others described about Kennedy in this cabin or shack in Mississippi, this very, very poor and dark place. We have no video of that or photographs because Kennedy felt after the first few stops, he asked them not to go into the homes of the poor because he felt that it made him uncomfortable and that it was kind of exploitive, perhaps. So that, you know, that's another thing that kind of contrasts it with what we see often today, both from politicians and celebrities. So once he returned to Washington, he maintained a fierce focus on the people he met in Mississippi, and he was propelled by the urgency of their needs. He did indeed make valiant effort to get help to hungry families in the Delta. And it's important to examine his reaction and efforts and the reaction of those that he was hoping to move towards action, the other politicians and political leaders and elected officials. However, I believe very strongly that the experiences of their children and their parents are just as valid as Kennedy's. So while I was working on this project, I had a child and that made a huge difference in how I sort of connected and processed the experience of these mothers. They were in my mind and still are quite often in my mind. And the stories from their children about how hard they worked every day just to feed their children. And I always like to say their names because many of the press accounts, I had to really search. There were only a couple of reporters who provided the names 
many of the press accounts just called them the terms that were used at the time, a Negro woman or a Negro child or a Negro man. But Miss Fanny Dillard and Annie White and Miss Edna Luckett and Ordell Wilson, Miss Ordell Wilson, all of those women were heroic every single day as they struggled to put food in their mouths. And so to this end, my work, I hope to provide a wider focus on Kennedy's trip, going beyond just its impact on him and his biography. To include the stories of four children and their families who encountered Kennedy. By sharing their stories along with his, I hope to bring the people he met into the light of history and bear witness both to their suffering and their perseverance. In 1967, Kennedy, he pushed into places that other would not go to see poverty for himself. And I almost called it to see for himself because that was such a, a part of what he wanted to do. One of his aides told me, you know, he, was, he grew up the son of a rich and powerful man. And so he, all of his life, he had had people wanting to be friends with him or coming up to him or somehow, you know, he was a brother of a president who were wanting to influence or manipulate him in one way or the other. He also had a background as an investigator and, a, and, and as the attorney general. And so he was very focused on finding out what the actual situation was. He didn't want to just hear from activists or civil rights leaders or anybody. So he knocked on doors. He would say, let's stop here. He'd make surprise stops. He would go to the house that civil rights or poverty advocates would take him to. And then he would go next door or he would go and say, what's happening here and ask questions of people. And so what he found motivated him to work for change in ways that still reverberate today, both in current food aid policy and in the lives of those he encountered. So writing this book, I hope to tell the story of his visit, but I also hope to offer much more because I really believe that when Robert Kennedy traveled deep into the Mississippi Delta, he took an essential step towards both his and the nation's destiny. And one of the things I like to talk about, Kennedy had a great ear for compelling language and there are plenty, and he also was really great at picking great speechwriters. But on April 4th, 1968, and some of you might recognize that date as a truly tragic date, uh, the day that Dr. King was assassinated. There's a famous speech that he, impromptu speech that he gave after that. But what I found is that, you know, those tragic events overshadowed something that happened earlier that day. That day he was campaigning for the presidential primary in Indiana and he spoke at Ball State and he gave a major speech on poverty and hunger and his plan to address that. And one of the things that he said on that day at that speech at Ball State, he said, if the United States cannot feed the children of our nation, there's very little we will be able to succeed in doing to live up to the principles which our founders set out nearly 200 years ago. This is our nation. It is for us to turn this nation towards a path of honor. And I think those, those words echo to us even today. So I wanted to take a, just a minute or two and do, usually I do a little bit of a reading and I wanted to read about Charlie Dillard and he was nine when Kennedy met him and came into his yard. And then I'll take some questions. 
Nine-year-old Charlie Dillard's life was filled with uncertainties. His grandmother's unpredictable temper, his mother's frequent and often frantic search for work, just to name two. However, some things were certain. His grandparents' three-room home in Cleveland, Mississippi, which he shared with eight brothers and sisters, as well as various aunts, uncles, and cousins, would be cold in the winter. It would be sweltering in the summer heat, and there would be nights that he would go to bed hungry, even days in a row when he would have almost nothing to eat. There would be times when, with his growing legs aching, his stomach hollow and gnawing, he would lie awake and weep. At the time of Kennedy's visit, Charlie lived on Christman Avenue in the low end of East Side, a poor black neighborhood a few blocks from the center of the former railroad town. Charlie's grandfather, Joseph Dillard, had grown weary of always owning the landowner. And in 1960, he gave up sharecropping and moved his family to Cleveland, where he found work with the county at the county road barn. His daughter, Pearlie May, had stayed in the country with her own growing family to work in the fields. Chopping and picking cotton was all Pearlie May knew. Because her parents needed the help of all their children in the fields, she had rarely ever gone to school starting late after the cotton picking season and leaving in the spring for planting and weeding meant she was always behind in her studies. Overwhelmed and struggling, she gave up attending school and then the baby started coming. First Rob and then Charlie and his twin brother Charles and then six others, all delivered by midwives in tenant shacks deep in the rural Delta, far from medical care. One of the babies died from pneumonia after a few months of life as his mother watched helplessly to save him. As the 1960s unfolded, waves of change began to sweep over the Delta. The field work grew scarce and unpredictable and Pearlie May, who remained a single mother, struggled to care for her children. Charlie never knew his father and his mother moved him and his brothers and sisters often until a short time before Kennedy visited. They landed at her father's house in Cleveland. Pearlie May had heard that there was work in Florida in the vegetable fields for more money than she could make in Mississippi, and she headed down there to find out. The addition of eight hungry children to his household weighed heavily on Joseph Dillard. He already had a few of the youngest of his nine children still with him, and some of them had babies of their own. By April 1967, he, there were 15 people living in the small house, and his county wages were hardly sufficient to feed, clothe, and care for all of them. Angry over Pearlie May's departure, Joseph Dillard was often harsh with her children. His wife, Fanny, however, always insisted that they take their grandchildren in and love them all in their quiet way, Charlie recalled. A deeply religious woman, she often gave up her own meals for them. At times, Joseph would order her not to feed Charlie and his brothers and sisters if the food got scarce. However, if his grandmother had something, she would share it with the children when her husband left the house. When the family did eat, it was usually a meager meal of molasses and bread or cornbread and beans, supplemented with vegetables from the garden during the summer. Occasionally they might have salmon croquettes, but they almost never had meat. Sometimes their neighbors in the close-knit Eastside community, poor as they were themselves, sent whatever leftovers they had to help Fanny Dillard feed those children. With no money for toys, Charlie and the other children spent most of their time playing in the grassless yard outside their grandparents' home. 
he was playing there that April afternoon when he looked up and saw the newsmen aiming their big black cameras at a man in a suit coming towards his house. Robert Kennedy, escorted by Amzie Moore, a local civil rights stalwart, was walking the unpaved streets of the east side. To Charlie's surprise, Kennedy approached the Dillard home but stopped to talk with the children before going inside. Kennedy greeted Charlie, delighting him by shaking his hand, a shocking thing for a white man to do in 1967 in Mississippi. Kennedy asked Charlie about school, which he was not yet attending, and then asked what he had eaten that day. Molasses, Charlie answered simply. As Kennedy talked with the other children, Charlie ran inside the shack to tell his grandmother about the visitor. And Kennedy followed, climbing the unpainted steps to a screened-in porch. Charlie watched from the corner behind his grandmother. How do you feed all of these children? Kennedy, who was the father of 10 children already at the time, asked. It was hard, but they got by, Fanny Dillard told him. Kennedy talked to Fanny Dillard quietly, almost shyly. Dillard, a sturdy woman with expressive eyes, had her hair tied up in a ragged scarf and wore a worn house dress. The senator asked her about her family's meals that day. No, didn't have no meat, sir, she was quick to answer. Then what did they have to eat, Kennedy wanted to know. Bread and syrup, Fanny Dillard replied. Kennedy struggled to understand her Mississippi accent. Bread and what, he said. S-Y-R-U-P, S-Y-R-U-P, she said, her voice rising. Syrup and bread, Kennedy repeated slowly. What, did they have any lunch, the senator asked. No, I ain't giving them no lunch, Charlie's grandmother said, frowning and glancing down. And then looking up to meet Kennedy's gaze, she added, I won't feed him again till the evening. But, but, but they, but they, Kennedy stammered. I can't feed him but twice a day, she said, raising her voice a little as she talked over his objections. Silenced, Kennedy blinked, and then his eyes widened momentarily in surprise. He looked over her shoulder to Charlie, who stood leaning on the rail at the corner of the porch, his head resting on his thin arms. Kennedy's gaze shifted then toward the yard where other children from Cleveland's east side kneeled around the newsman. He nodded to Miss Dillard and looked down. With a small, rueful sigh, Kennedy turned to go. Charlie's grandmother stood still on the porch, her left hand on her hip. She stared into the middle distance, biting her lip as he walked out. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk, and I'm happy to have any questions that y'all may have. First of all, thank you, Ellen. That was super interesting and on one of your slides, I just noticed that it was talking about the Head Start program and how it started. Right. That started in Mississippi? Yes. And can you talk just more about that? And when the fact that really stunned me was what the average salary, yearly salary, correct? Of right, right. So Head Start, uh, that was one thing that really stunned me in general, looking at the documents and the things from the time, just kind of realizing what a hole we were in and, and how poor so much of Mississippi was. I'll tell you, I don't have a great memory for numbers, so I will have to look back there. Okay. Yes, that, that slide is the thing that I, rem I think about all, the day, all day. Let me share the screen again. Okay, this is the slide that we're looking at. And so these are the numbers that 
that stunned me. And like, if I, whenever I try to talk, uh, get a chance to talk to any of my state elected officials, I really want them to know, because if you look at 1960, 160,000 of the adults over 25 had no more than a fourth grade education. And another 40,000 had no education at all. So that's 200,000 people in a population at that time of about 2 million who had uh, under a fourth grade education. So Head Start started, and like you said, their family incomes averaged about $400 a year. At that time, Mississippi had moved away a good bit from the sort of traditional sharecropping model to more of a day labor kind. I mean, there was probably still some sharecropping going on, but it was a lot of day labor. So there was a lot of day labor going on. And so how that system was affected by some of the war on poverty programs. So people had been getting along and even a, a nutritional study in the late 1950s found that people in Mississippi, poor people in Mississippi were actually eating better than they were in 68 when they came back and did it again. They were certainly not good, but they, it was better than 67 was especially difficult because people would had kind of settled into a system where they got commodities during which were surplus government food like corn but it was things like corn and meal and peanut butter and those kinds of things so they would get that during the winter and then they would work as day labor even the children would be paid by the day to work in the cotton field and cotton is very labor intensive especially early on you need a lot of people to help weed it until the plants get laid by or get established well enough it can outfight the weeds so they would make money during the season and then they would get by on commodities during the off season and it was a subsistence kind of living but it was at least something and the sort of perfect storm that hit Mississippi um, in 65 and the 18 months leading up to 67 was that they had this new things like pre-emergent herbicide and I had always seen those commercials or seen ads in Mississippi for it and not realize what it was is what it means is that you spray it on there and the words the weeds don't emerge so suddenly they didn't need people to chop the cotton so thousands of people lost their job and many of them had been living for little or no rent in some of these very dilapidated places with no running water on the land so they lost their homes they weren't needed for day labor and the new food stamp program in the early days at least for the first 10 years or so you had to pay a certain number of cents on the dollar to buy them so the people lost their ability to make any money and they couldn't get the commodities anymore because now they went to food stamps which from a macro sense food stamps were considered a good thing for the poor because it gave them choices they could buy in the store unless you had no income to buy them. Suddenly people couldn't get the commodities and they didn't have any day labor. And so they really had very little option for food. And it was a very difficult time. And Mary and Wright Edelman went up to Washington in 67 and said, people are starving. And what are you going to do about it to Kennedy and the others? And so she, in a sense, is a kind of a heroine of the book. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to make it clear too, which is just mind blowing to me that in those days, the county had to choose to be in the school lunch program. 
And so all of those, a lot of those counties had opted out. And so those children weren't getting, even when they went to school, one of the women, Annie White's daughter, she told me that her, one of her teachers would buy an extra food ticket and give it to a different child each week. And just even she was in her, when she was talking to me, she was in her late fifties or early sixties and the joy on her face talking about the one week she got to eat at school is just heartbreaking. Thank you for that. Let's see, we had another question from Facebook. I saw the slide of, I don't know if it's pronounced Unita or Unita. I've never heard it out loud. Blackwell and Fannie Lou Hamer. Can you talk more about what they did in Mississippi for the hungry? Okay, yes, you need to Blackwell and Fannie Lou Hamer. They tested, they were so, just such pivotal heroes in the sort of local people's efforts to speak out about the injustices of Mississippi. By that time, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer had sort of electrified the nation um, at the 1964 Democratic Convention. So, so the Mississippi Democratic Party had sent an all-white delegation, which, you know, was the same, same as the Mississippi Republican Party at the time, too, by that time. And they had spoken out and asked to be seated as a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And so they were fairly well known to Kennedy and some of the other senators by that time as people who were deeply connected to their communities. And so they spoke at this hearing and answered questions. And, you know, you know, you need a Blackwell, especially she'd been very involved with the Head Start program and the community action program. So, so Mississippi refused the money for Head Start and the War on Poverty had a provision in it that community, these community action groups could form and then the money could be funneled into, it'd be like sort of today if you refused um, Obamacare, but then a county could, or a group of people could go together and they would funnel the money, bypass the state government, even the local government. So these community action groups, and they were very involved in that. And so they, they knew what people were, were suffering, and so they were advocating for that. But you know, Blackwell said something like, you know, Senator Stennis is complaining about some of these things, and we have children who've never even had milk before. You know, they, they don't even have milk at home, and we have children coming to the Head Start programs. They were doing a lot of work on the ground, which is, I'm not as much familiar with the specifics of, but it was very important to have them bear witness in these hearings, which are broadcast all over the state and on the nightly news nationwide clips from them. It was important to have their voices there. Those are the only questions we had. Uh, I think somebody's raising their hand uh, over there. Uh, oh, okay. Let me unmute. Yeah, I have a question and uh, I think this is in the book, but I'm, I'm not sure what happened to Charlie. Charlie, oh, Charlie's one. Of, he's the. I just talked to him the other day. He's he's doing well. So Charlie's mother took him to Florida, and ironically, you know that there was this famous documentary, Harvest of Shame, that CBS did about, and it was the same county that his mother moved to. But they had some programs there, educational programs that were outreach to children of the farm workers and the people who picked the vegetables. So he had a couple of years in a school that he really loved and just, he loved school. He, it, it just sort of lit him uh, on fire. So then later they moved to North Carolina to pick uh, tobacco and work in tobacco fields. And he went to school a little bit 
more there, but he did not like North Carolina and he didn't like the family situation. So he came back to live with his grandfather in Cleveland. Uh, his grandfather said, you can't live here and go to school. He needed like another year of a senior year. He said, you can't live here and go to school. You have to work. If you live here, you have to work. So, so, so he went to work. But then later in 2005, he went back. He's got four children and all of them are just doing so great. Some of them are in education and in the medical field and transportation. And he went back and got his DD. And there's a picture in the slideshow of him there with the, with the DD because he, and he just emphasized education was so, so good. And he worked later at different jobs. He worked at in one of the chicken, supervising the line and knife sharpener in one of the chicken processing factories and he worked for a Goodyear or Bridgestone or something and, and, and but did he stay in Mississippi Auto, maybe West but he stayed in Mississippi yes and he lives up in Winstonville now okay thank you are there any other questions you can unmute yourself and ask a question if you'd like okay so I see one let's see let me look at the chat are you going to ask them Tracy or yeah, I just, that one just popped up and I missed it. Yeah, uh, I, I can ask it myself if you want me to. So I guess what I'm wanting to know is what are the similarities and the differences between what was going on in the 60s versus today? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. And I know that's kind of what I promised that I would talk about uh, a little <laughs> bit. But, you know, so one of the things that really struck me when I was doing this is how similar the kinds of reaction to what Kennedy was finding, how, how much of the same approach that the people in charge in Mississippi, the powerful elected officials and, and other folks in power. So they react, same approach. So they said, these programs are a waste of money. We're just here to protect the taxpayers. And, you know, I kind of wonder if that, it seems like sometimes the only Bible story they ever read uh, or took to heart was the good steward and don't, and didn't listen to any of the others. They talked about creeping socialism and, uh, you know, all anything that helped families was immediately branded as socialism. They bristled at federal interference and they said, you're just trying to make Mississippi look bad. And they refused millions and millions and millions of dollars that the federal programs were trying to send them. And sometimes they had a buy-in that would cost, you know, they had to contribute a little bit. But if you think about the money that would have circulated in, oh, there's so many of these little dying Mississippi towns, that money that would have circulated into these towns, you know, buying food at stores and hiring workers at Head Start, so those kinds of things. So they left back then millions and millions and millions of dollars on the table because of these sort of ideas about principle and they do that they do that today so that was one thing that really struck me there's still a lot of hungry children in mississippi and i talked today i put some numbers in there from 2018 so if you look at child hunger in the three counties he visited it, even in a county i live in a county that's fairly prosperous and it's still about one in five one in four children who are in food insecure households so every time i go to walmart every time i'm out i imagine you know that on average one in every four child i see is going to be running out of food at some time during the month and right now we have about 12 food insecure households per square mile in mississippi now 
It is better. And I really want to try to thread the needle carefully because I think there are some people out there so that, oh, we've thrown money at this situation for so long and it never gets better. It is dramatically better, but the need is still so great. You know, in the Mediterranean, there's this soup that basically like bread and water and garlic kind of. And there's an old saying about it. It's a peasant soup that it will keep you alive, but also kill you after a while. And so I think oftentimes some of what we do in Mississippi is kind of like that soup. Like it's just enough, but it's, it's never enough to help the situation. And COVID-19 has made things so much worse. I just taught, I'm trying to find the numbers. The Mississippi Food Network, which is one of the three main kind of consortiums that helps food pantries in the state. And they, she took, I just talked to her and Kelly Mott there told me this morning that January through June in 2019, they distributed about 14.7 million pounds of food. And uh, January through June of this year, they've already distributed 17.4 million pounds of food, which translates into about 12.3 million meals. And one thing that I was very conscious of during, at the beginning of this, and it's continuing, is that, that so many of the children who are suffering in 1967 are now in their 50s and 60s, and they're at risk of the worst effects of the virus and COVID-19. And especially early on, state's doing a little better now, but especially early on, Mississippi was failing them in the same ways that it failed them in 1967 when they were hungry, that they were dismissing the problem, they were not taking advantage of aid and programs that were in place at that point. They've stepped up a little bit more since then, but there's still a lot of difficulties. They're still seeing a lot of hunger, both for children and the elderly. And so I put in a slide there, some of the things you can do when you talk to your county, your state, your federal officials, if you send emails, there are programs that need to be continually um, supported, reactivated, or reauthorized or continue their authorization. So those are some things that do help children as well. The other, another problem with food hunger right now is that so many of the folks that were volunteering in the state's food pantries are having to stay home because they're in risk, risk groups. They're trying to find some other ways to reach out and do some mobile food pantries in the state, but it's very piecemeal too. And I guess the thing is that back then and now, nobody, like you just don't hear at the state level, I don't, ever hear or see Governor Reeves or any of the others talk about child hunger. I don't see them going over to see for themselves one way or the other like Kennedy did. Maybe they are and I've missed it, but hunger is a very invisible kind of catastrophe. It happens behind closed doors. And one thing that Kennedy did was take it from the abstract, like poverty. Poverty is a moving target. It's going to look different every generation. But hunger is something, even if we're well off, we felt and we can feel in literally a more visceral kind of way. And I think that was what Kennedy did very well is to help people say, you know, I, I got, I was honored to be invited to go to the 50th memorial service of, that they had for him in Washington, his family and others, uh, the public service. And 
one of the speakers there said, kind of distilled Robert Kennedy, who was no saint. He certainly had his failures, but his approach to public service was, if we can do better, then we must do better. And I think that's true in Mississippi and America. If we can do better, we're a rich country. We shouldn't have any children who are hungry. I don't see that as a liberal or conservative kind of thing. I just see that as a basic, I mean, he saw it as a a patriotic issue and I see it that way too. We're going to do this last question and then we'll do the exciting book giveaway. (laughs) Okay. This was a question that was on Facebook. I'm curious about how you perceive the VHS scandal. I'm assuming this is the recent uh, DHS scandal. Uh, One argument state officials made to Kennedy is that they were managing the state well. Not only were people not being cared for, but you had local Black leaders not being empowered. How did you process the unfolding of this DHS scandal, Ellen, and how many people have been hurt and missed out because of greed and corruption? So the DHS scandal, I want to make sure which one are are they referring to. The one recently where the money was not got, was going to all the other crazy things like wrestlers and so forth. Yes, I was, you know, there's so many outrages that have happened. <laughs> like just so many, not just outrages, but so many horrible things that have happened in the last six months. Yes, I think that that very much is, it's just kind of a punch in the stomach because you have this idea that even if our federal and elected officials Maybe there's a fair criticism that they're not doing enough or they're not voting for enough of that, but that they'd already voted for that money and that, and it wasn't even going, you know, it was set up in a way to benefit a small number. And one of the things that was very telling to me, there's a political scientist that came up with this idea of political cultures and Mississippi in his estimation is a traditionalistic political culture, which is is different from ideology. It's not necessarily about liberal or conservative political ideology, but it's about structure and how power is used. In a traditionalistic political power structure, the state, the government exists to benefit the people in power. Mm -hmm. So it only changes if the people in power feel threatened its main goal is to maintain the status quo in the current hierarchy. And so I just saw that DHS scandal as something that took so much money out of the hands of families like Annie White and Fannie Dillard and kept it in a small circle of, you know, political elite and powerful. And I saw that it fit, I thought it fit pretty well with that kind of idea. Um, Does that, answer your question. I don't know who answered it. I asked the question, but it was a great one and I should have been better prepared for it, but. It was a Facebook one, so I'm not able to get an update. Okay, so Shelly told me that you need to choose a number, a number between one and 20. A number between one and 20. So I'm going to pick 15. Lucky winner is Selena Schwartzfager. And Selena, is she Yay! Yay! Congratulations! Thank you. I'm not Zoom appropriate, which is why I've just gotten my picture up there. But I have been listening and enjoying the talk. So, uh, so if you could get your information, your mailing information to Tracy. Um, if you can, um, on the chat, there's a way to send a private message. Yes. 
And if you'll just send me that private message, I'll get it to Ellen and we'll get you and she'll send you that book. Okay, I'm doing it right now. Okay, awesome. And I thank you. Oh, oh. congratulations. And I was gonna say, I put the, the email, I mean, the websites of various agencies um, about where you can go. And $1, for every $1, it provides six donated, at least to the Mississippi Food Network. It's probably similar for the Mid-South Food Bank and the Southern Gulf Coast. $1 provides six meals. So um, you can go there and donate. You can also go to the map, the gap, feedingamerica.org. And you can look at your own county and see how many children, at least in 2018, and just expect to, it to have gone up quite a bit since COVID-19 started. You can toggle on the top, whether it's food insecurity over all ages or child food insecurity. And the child food insecurity is a lot higher usually in the counties. So I'll just put that plug in too. Well, thank you, Ellen. Um, also, the Facebook person said, yes, you did answer his question. So okay. <laughs> we have a little delay in our technology, but it, it works out. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us today. I know that if you haven't read Delta Epiphany, we all want to now. And Selena is ahead of the game by getting her own personal copy. But if you haven't read it, you can check your uh, public library holdings. I know we have it here at MLC, so you can, if you're in Jackson, give us a call and we'll bring it to you curbside because that's how we're doing libraries right now. So anyway. Um, is, it, is it on the, um, well, I guess every library, is it on the, it is an audio book too. So I didn't know if it's in the eBooks and audio books that you'll- Yeah, you'll it depends on what a library's subscriptions are okay. and all okay. of that. But if it's available on audiobook, then a library may also have it. But if you have any questions about accessing the book, you can contact us at, uh, here at MLC and we can connect you to your public library wherever you are, if you're, even if you're out of state and we can do that to you. We'll just make sure you get access. <laughs> yes, and, and email me if you if you can't find it. I'll help you find it. Okay, great. Well, thank you again for this wonderful talk, and thank you for everyone to come in today. And thanks. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. I, I enjoyed it, and thank you, Tracy, for asking me. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.